Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 3, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. So our topic for today's episode is about how to follow Jesus in a world that is saturated with technology. So and when I say saturated, I mean saturated, <laughs> that you cannot turn around without having technology um, be a factor in your, in your life and in your relationships. It's all around us. So anything that, has, that is that saturating in our lives and is that powerful, because we all agree these technologies are powerful, um, any of these things that are that powerful in our life deserve special attention relative to what our life is like following Jesus. Of course they're going to affect our life of following Jesus, and just because uh, Jesus never held a smartphone doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have something to say about us holding a smartphone and what that means in our relationships. So today we're going to focus on that, and uh, we're going to have a a couple of uh, interesting ways to get at this, including a portion of an interview that I did with Joni Schultz, who's the chief creative officer of Group, which is who Becky and I work for uh, for a long time. Uh, Joni's been the chief creative officer for a long time here at Group, and she and her husband, Tom, who's the founder of the organization, go every year to the Consumer Electronics Show. They have for the last decade or so, and they immerse themselves in this world in Las Vegas that is all about the cutting edge of technology. So we're going to talk to Joni about her experience this year at the Consumer Electronics Show and what she saw there, and we're going to hear uh, from uh, a couple other voices along the way as well. But uh, I had mentioned to to Becky, who's, by the way, this is Becky over here to my left. Hello. She's the Becky-nator. And my name is uh, Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life and editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible and part of the team that produces all kinds of Jesus-centered resources to help you and us pay more ridiculous attention to Jesus. This isn't just something we do. It's really our life. This is what the cadence of our life is all about. So we create things to help you live this kind of life as well. So that's what we do. And so before we dive uh, deeper into this whole issue of technology, I was telling Becky about a philosopher named Jacques Ellul that maybe some of you have heard of or read before, but um, he wrote a book called The Technological Society, which is considered sort of the masterwork on the relationship human beings have with technology. And technology is really an extension of our humanness. So technology can be a hammer or a chainsaw or a smartphone and anything. The pencil Becky is holding right now is a technology because it extends your ability to do something as a human being. So we've always had technologies throughout human existence. They've just morphed and changed in what they are. But I think it's important to start off with a quote from Jacques Ellul from the Technological Society to kind of give us a setting for this conversation today. So here's what he says. He says, Technique has penetrated the deepest recesses of the human being. 
the machine tends not only to create a new human environment, but also to modify man's very essence. The milieu in which he lives is no longer his. He must adapt himself as though the world were new to a universe for which he was not created. So, for instance, he was made to go six kilometers an hour, but he goes a thousand. He was made to eat when he was hungry and to sleep when he was sleepy. Instead, he obeys a clock, another form of technology. He was made to have contact with living things, and he lives in a world of stone. He was created with certain essential unity, and he is fragmented by all the forces of the modern world. Now, this is Jacques Ellul writing decades ago, and it just seems like he's talking about today. This sense of fragmentation, and you see research evidence of this all around us, that personally and in our relationships, we're struggling against fragmentation and isolation, and we're struggling against the impact that the things that we love are having on us, and we're trying to make sense of all of this. And Becky, uh, we, we had talked about a, a, a show that neither one of us had watched, and I, I just read something about the show. A person was commenting on it, and I thought, wow, this, is, this show is really trying to kind of flesh out uh, what it would look like in the future if the current trends that we're into now went kind of to seed, became a huge deal, even bigger than they are now. Uh, this show is called Black Mirrors, and you you watched it last night. So yeah. Let's hear what you experienced from it. So I watched the first um, episode of Black Mirrors last night, and it's definitely a show that is a little bit disturbing. But the first episode was a little comical, um, I will say. It, it, it was about this girl in her 20s and, you know, just starting out in her life and trying to, you know, start her career and find a husband, all those things that girls in their 20s are doing, except for the entire world is ruled by what your status number is. And what your status number is, is not your credit score. Um, it's actually your social media score. So she goes and she lives in this, you know, really small apartment with her brother. She wants to live in this nicer neighborhood and get like a, you know, her own place. And so she goes with the realtor to look at it and they're like, oh, sorry, honey, you're only a 4.78 and you have to be at least a 4.8 to live here. Um, and so this it's this really comical, like kind of like parody of what if your social media status actually rules your entire world. And so it, it takes her on this whole long, um, like long story that's absolutely ridiculous. She goes to the airport and her flight is canceled and they have another flight, but it, you can't get on that flight unless you have like a status of a seven. And it's it's it, the whole thing is, is is exactly what it would be like if our entire lives were ruled by how many people liked us on Facebook or how many people liked us on social media and, and you know, how many of our things they like. She even at one point hires a coach to help get her score up. So <laughs> it's, I'm not sure any, any coach could get my score. Up. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, I felt like that was a great lead into, you know, where, where would this take us in the future if it was just totally exaggerated to the point of, of, your status well, and we can kind of I mean you we say this and we're laughing and there, but you can kind of feel some of the tension of that already I mean it's not blown out to that extent but the fact that people like our Facebook post or share a Facebook post 
or comment on a Facebook post or on your status update or on a photo that you post. Or um, I know in the world of teenagers, there's a whole level of expectation in the language that you respond to a post with. So if you're a teenage girl and you post a photo of yourself, you are supposed to hear back from your friends, you are the most beautiful girl in the world, something like that. Yep. If you hear back instead, that's a nice picture. That is a total slam. Yep. So they have their own set of norms and values that you have to follow in that world if you're going to um, continue to prop up and, co- and communicate that I think you're great. Whether or not you really believe your rhetoric, <laughs> your hyperbole, when you, when you say it doesn't matter because you're trying to follow the norms and standards that exist in that world. So we are affected by this yeah. stuff already. It's yeah. just not blown out to that extent. And if we think about the two biggest things this Christmas buying season were virtual reality and augmented reality, the virtual reality goggles, I, I, I like, mm-hmm. seemed like every other commercial was about those Samsung goggles that uh, you saw reactions of people experiencing a virtual world through those goggles, and they were just, you know, falling over themselves or crying or screaming, and you you realize, wow, these things are really powerful. Well, that was a big deal at the Consumer Electronics Show, virtual reality and augmented reality. The difference between the two really is that in virtual reality, that's a computer-generated simulation of reality. It's a three-dimensional experience where you could be in an empty room and put on these goggles, and you feel like you're in a 3D world. Whereas augmented reality, you're still in your real world, but something from virtual reality is added into that real world, like Pokemon Go, for instance. So you're seeing a real sidewalk, but you're also seeing the unreal Pokemon on that sidewalk with your with your smartphone. So that's augmented reality. So we wanted to talk to Joni Schultz about uh, specifically virtual reality and augmented reality, what she saw at the Consumer Electronics Show, and what she thought about as she considered how these technologies are affecting our relationships with each other. So let's listen to a short portion of my interview with Joni right now. Well, I'll, I'll talk about augmented reality first. And you talk about Pokemon Go, which that is like the miracle augmented reality use. And I there there was a panel or an interview with the person who actually was part of the team that invented it. And I thought what was most interesting is they weren't saying, oh, well, what do we do with technology and how do we make... But their whole idea was how do we get people exercising? And that struck me as very interesting. So here's hmm. a techie world, but they're their goal was how do we get people exercising, meeting people, and getting out and moving? Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Mission accomplished. Yeah, <laughs> it, they did it. And so it was really, it just sounded like they were part of a team that was very innovative and um, looked outside the box. Then it was interesting with virtual reality, and I went to a lot of different sessions about that. And one of the the ones that I thought was interesting and really a play, I went to a lot of education and family and kids things. And what was one of the uh, displays with virtual reality, or maybe that was the augmented reality, where they had a play mat on the floor like a rug. And you were it was using um, an iPad or a device to look at it. And the castle would, instead of being flat on the floor, it... Oh, it became 3D. It became 3D. And then there were birds flying around. I mean, so the storybooks and 
sheets that come alive, make the stories come alive for kids. You mean sheets that on a bed? Bed, bed sheets. Yeah. Wow. And so <laughs> it was like every you can't. It's like imagination gone wild. And really um, very interesting in all of this, one of the things that strikes me as it's all this techie stuff, but they also know that people need tangibles and things that they touch. So they're really trying to figure out how do we make things that are virtual, they're wanting to meld the idea of tangible. So even in a game that was a virtual I'm trying, I can't even remember. I think it was Square Panda, what it's called. And it's helping kids learn to read. And so it's the, you know, neat little um, device. But it also, you put in letters. So you hold letters, shapes, and put them in this box. And then the virtual or the the screen uh, will read the words that you put in. So if it's huh. wrong, it'll, instead of the word read, it might be. At all, you know, and, and so the little creature reads whatever you wrote until you spell it correctly huh. with your tangible letters. So, so that was for little children. So what you're describing is kind of the fuzzing of the line between reality and virtual reality, and they're actually trying to meld those even more together. So what what thoughts have you had about how this could or is impacting our ability to relate to each other? Well, the the crazy weird thing about virtual reality and some people are are really questioning you know people that are into technology and seeing what they can do they love it there are other people looking and saying this is it's isolating and people have fears about that they say here everybody gets together and put if they're even with a group and i've i've been a part of a, a an amazing virtual reality experience with uh, charity water and you put on the virtual reality headset and you are there digging a well in Africa. And you can turn around and you can see the people behind you. You can see the water. So it's cool. And people are trying to say, well, but you're not really feeling it. So they're creating gloves that make it feel like you're actually sensing temperature or heat. And there's a point where I go, how, when are we talking about real reality, real relation? Because it, there were people there that were talking about the fear of isolation, mm. that virtual reality, mm -hmm. um, everything has a push and pull, a, you know, pro and con to it. And I think that was the fear that people said, you know, as cool as virtual reality is, it could be very isolating. Yeah, in a way you can think of it like drugs or alcohol in that they – they, it's an artificial means to help you to feel or think something that you wouldn't normally in your everyday life. They put you in a place that you wouldn't normally get to without the assistance of those things. But then you come down off the drugs or off the alcohol, and you're in real life. Mm -hmm. and, you're, and you've sort of replaced growth in reality with this sort of uh, uh, alley mm -hmm. that you've gone into of virtual reality or augmented reality where uh, reality can't then match, in some ways, your virtual or augmented reality experience. So will you ever be able to get off the drug yeah. then? And I think, you know, it's thinking, how do you use that technology in a way that really works? And there's a place where I think it's great for pilots. Pilots and astronauts have been using virtual reality for long. You know, it's how they learn to practice actually doing something that you know, they're that could kill do. someone if they made a mistake. <laughs> right, <laughs> but that they're going to do in real life. And I think what what's hard is I can see an advantage of virtual reality if I am, in, you know, in a 
I can't go to Australia, but I want to see kangaroos. But still, I, I see that there's great things that you could experience and look around. But one of the speakers there, he was kind of uh, riffing on the idea of virtual reality, maybe like 3D TVs were a few years ago, because that was the, the latest, hottest, big thing. And he said, uh, I don't believe that it'll ever take the place of movies, for example, because that was one of the things people said, well, who would ever want to go to a movie anymore? Because you could actually be in the setting. And he said, it, directors of movies are in there for a reason, because they direct your attention. And so he made some little joke about, so somebody gets you know, hit over the head over here and the whole theater is looking over there and you're missing the explosions happening behind your back. Directors help you focus in places. So he was talking a lot about, I think people are excited about it right now. And um, there may be some pitfalls to it that we're not really thinking about. And I think the biggest one is relationship and real connection with people in the real world. I kept saying, where's real reality? All right. Wow. There was a lot there that uh, Joni had to say. It's fascinating to listen about her experience at this massive show that is, keeps getting bigger and bigger, and the immersive uh, uh, feeling of being around people that are pushing the envelope with these powerful tools, these powerful technologies that are clearly leveraging the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to others, and the way we relate to God. So, uh, Becky, you told me a story a while back about your cousin who lives in China, and this just blew my mind. I had no idea this was going on. Why don't you tell that story now? Well, I love how Joni ends saying, I just kept thinking, where is the real reality? And it totally reminded me of this story. Um, my cousin, he is living in China, and he, you know, he's, first of all, he's like six foot five. I, that's probably an exaggeration, but he's very tall and he's living in China. So he probably already <laughs> he's a giant. feels a little out of place, but he, he, you know, he's, he's there, he's trying to make friends, he's working. And he says that every night that people just go into these virtual reality cafes and they just check into whatever they're tuning into and then they go home and go to bed. And it's really hard for him being such a relational being and want to make wanting to make friends and get outside. He's very, you know, outdoors. He's from Colorado. And it, it's just a very different culture. And he was just, you know, kind of t sharing with me like that he was feeling really depressed and lonely. And China is in a place where they're further along. You know, we're, we're behind them. We're going techn technologically where they're already at. It was just really sad to, to hear that. He also just mentioned, and I, I just really feel like this is just like very sad, is that there's studies in China that say that young people are not having as much sex because they're checking into these virtual reality wow. situations. I mean, that that's that's a disturbing thing that we're not even valuing this sort of very intimate and personal face-to-face -face relationships, and we're choosing this um, very unreal. So, so you hear this, you hear, you hear oh, uh, Chinese teenagers are not as sexually active as they were before. Oh, that starts to yeah, sound good. And that's oh, good. Whoa, wait, wait a minute. What, why? Because they're in virtual reality rooms having sex. Uh -huh. That's, uh, you know, these, these things, so just that alone, you're thinking about how powerful a shift in human relationship that alone is. And the issue is not to go to the extreme of saying, uh, we just need to go back to being Amish. That, that cat's out of the bag. The, the truth is, Jesus has told us 
that our mission in life, our role in life, is to be in the world but not of it. We are, we are not getting out of this world. We have the challenge of living as intimate followers of him in this world. That's really the crux of this issue. You know, I do a, a, a parent training thing on overconnected teenagers that is quite popular. Uh, a lot of parents show up to this whenever I do it. And um, as always, whenever I'm engaging parents about something about their kids, they come because they see a problem with their kids, and they hope that I can help them fix the problem with their kids. What I'm really there to do is surface their own issues as parents, my own issues as a parent, because really the issue isn't with our kids. It's with us and how we respond to our kids. So we talk about the ways that kids are overconnected and have, have had a loss of margin in their lives and what impact that's having. But one of the things I do that really is riveting for the parents is I bring a chainsaw with me. It's an actual <laughs> of he does. working chainsaw. <laughs> and at one point, I fire that thing up and, you know, it smells because it's a chainsaw and it's really loud. It's disturbing to hear a chainsaw started up in an interior room. <laughs> so I start up the chainsaw, and then I turn it off, and I say, hey, parents, I, wanna, I want you to talk with each other and decide uh, at what age would you say that it's appropriate for your child to use a chainsaw as a tool on their own with no supervision? You decide what age is the appropriate age. So they talk for a while, and then I get them back together, and I, and I say, okay, what did you decide? And I get a bunch of votes, and it's all over the board, usually. Some parents say, never. I, I would never want my child to use a chainsaw unsupervised. Some who are maybe more adventurous, um, they, they would say things like, well, as long as I trained them well, you know, uh, 10 years old. My, my kid could use a chainsaw if they're 10 years old. So what we all agree about is that this is a worthy discussion. If you are going to have a teenager or a child use a chainsaw, it's worthy to talk about how old do they have to be before they use it. Then I hold up a smartphone, and I say, I want you to have the same conversation now. How old do you have to be before you use this tool? And I want to make the case that this tool is at least as powerful as the chainsaw we just looked at. So then they have this conversation, and then they come back with their own personal standards. But what happens is that they start to realize that both things are powerful, and that if we don't have intentionality around it, we just say, well, whenever my kid bugs me enough, I'm going to get him a smartphone. We wouldn't do that with a chainsaw. Why do we do it with this powerful tool of a smartphone? You know, Rick, I think that me personally, this is something new that I'm learning about. I... Uh, sure, I know that I can be distracted by technology, but I actually didn't know that much about the scientific studies that they've done on how young people are interacting, um, how their brains are reacting to social media. And there is a video by Simon Sinek, and it's been floating around ever since the new year. I've seen it over and over on different platforms, and it's about 15 minutes long. It's well worth watching the whole thing. He's talking specifically about millennials and young people and technology. And the, the interesting thing about it, that is that most of the time when you hear people talking about young people and their use of technology, they're like 100 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, yeah. we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but 
he's actually a young guy. Um, we just wanted to point that out because it is a video and you can see that, but, um, he's a young guy, he's in his forties and this is something that he's dealing with personally. And so he's, he's talking about it from a very different perspective. Like, Hey, I'm on there too. I know, I know how you feel. So I, we want you to listen to this. And if you want to watch the full clip, then you can go onto our page and, and click on the link. Let's listen. Now let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good, right? So, you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a bit lonely. And so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes. It's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I would, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it. It's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive. That is uh, not mind-blowing and not sobering, but really attention-getting. I mean, you know, he, he's, he's saying, I think, the truth. The, the deal here is we have to be able to walk this tension line of saying what's true without worrying about the consequence of that truth quite yet. Let's first embrace the truth, and what he's saying is true. So let's first go there and say, yes, I believe that what he's saying is true, that, that our attachment to technologies and things like social media do have a physical reaction in ourselves that can lead us to be dependent on these things. Okay, let's just admit that that's true. Now, we're not going to jump out of the river. Jesus told us we need to be in the world, but not of it, so we're going to stay in the river. So we're not jumping out, but we do need to uh, recognize how to uh, swim intentionally in the river. And this is where it's, it's time to explore a little bit about the ways in which Jesus framed relationship. So we're going to kind of break away from our focus on technology for a minute and dive into Jesus uh, and the way that he talks about relationship with the Trinity and with us to kind of get a level set for what's, what he thinks about the nature of our relationship. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to John 14, and if you're listening along and you're not driving in a car and you have a Bible nearby, you might want to pull it out and open up to John 14. Now this John 14 all the way through chapter 17 is Jesus really preparing his disciples for him going away. He is headed toward the cross. Up until this point, he's spoken in parables and riddles, and the disciples are always asking him, Jesus, what the heck do you mean? And he's healing people, and he's telling those people, don't tell anyone that I healed you. He's really holding back the set of events that will be that will take him to the cross. He's holding off on those things. He doesn't want those things to start happening yet. Now he, he has no such qualms. He knows he's about to head to the cross, so he's speaking more plainly, more intimately. He's not speaking in riddles. He's speaking tenderly. He's speaking in a very emotional way relative to his own relationship with the Trinity and his relationship with his best friends. So I'm going to skip around John 14 and just pop in and out to give you a little taste of how Jesus is talking about his relationships. So in verse 1, chapter 14, he says, 
don't let, he's speaking to his disciples now, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Now put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Jesus has changed his tone here. He's starting to speak in a different way to you. You can sense in him he's trying to prepare you for something. So listen in that way as, as I continue here. So Jesus, Jesus says to them, there's more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything's ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now listen to what he's saying. He's saying, gang, I am, I am going away but I'm going away and I'm preparing a place for you. And the purpose is I want to be with you all the time. I want you to know that, that I, I love you. I love your presence. I love your company. I want you to be with me. And then he says, you know the way where I'm going. Well, that's a bit of a riddle because then Thomas says, hey, Lord, we don't know where you're going. What are you talking about? How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? And Jesus responds to Thomas and says, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, you don't have to be pointed to the way. You hold on to me. Just be with me, because I am the way to where you're going. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So he's saying, look, Thomas, I'm not asking you to figure out how to get to where I'm going. Be with me. And by the way, the Father you can't see, you do see in me. The key here is to know me, because if you know me, you know my Father, because my Father and I share the same heart. So Jesus is speaking about two things here, the intimacy he has with his Father, and that he wants to invite his best friends into that intimacy. He continues after Philip says, hey, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, basically, I just told you. (laughs) Philip, I just told you how to see the Father. So here's how he, he responds. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. So Jesus is trying to say, Philip, pay attention to me. Pay attention in your relationship to me. I'm inviting you to understand the unseen God that you long for, but you're going to have to pay better attention to me to see him. I'm right here, Philip. Study who I am and what I do and why I do these things. Just believe that the Father and I share the same heart. We're about the same things. So study me more. So he's inviting him into an uh, unregulated relationship, an unfiltered relationship, where nothing gets in the way between what Philip sees in him and Philip's understanding of his heart. He continues later on, uh, again, still speaking to his disciples. He says, I won't abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. 
When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me, and because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. He's saying, if you love me, my Father's going to love you because he loves me, and he loves anyone who loves me. Do you see the kind of uh, supercharged sort of relational intimacy that Jesus is proposing here as the normal way of life? Let me just continue with a couple other things, and we'll stop and talk about this. Jesus continues and says, But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. I'm leaving you with a gift. The gift is the Holy Spirit. The gift is peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world can't give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you. I'm going away but I will come back to you again. If you really loved me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. I've told you these things before they happen, so that when they do happen, you will believe. I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me, so that the world will know that I love the Father. Wow. So he ends this whole thing by saying, Here's what I want you to take away. I love my Father. I love Him, and He loves me, and I want to invite you into our close, energetic, raw, intimate relationship, where it's a mutual admiration society. (laughs) We love each other. And guess what? We can't wait for you to be with us. We want you to be a part of that. So here you see in John 14... Jesus's sort of framework of how he sees relationship. What stuck out to you in those little snippets that I that I read? So we're talking about technology and we're talking about relationships. And technology actually has some some ways that, you know, it helps you stay connected to people that are far away. I have moved a few times in my life and I also have traveled overseas and there's a lot of people that I I'm so glad I get to see pictures of their kids and just feel like I'm part of their life a little bit that I wouldn't normally have been able to. And I'm a terrible pen pal, so that would, that doesn't work. <laughs> so it, there's, you know, in some ways there's some relationships where I feel like I'm more connected to them because of it. In other ways, um, I think that relationships can they they take time. Um, intimacy takes time. Um, my husband has ADHD. And so one of the things that we have, the word we use in our house is lingering because, um, you know, he always has to be doing something and I'll say, can you just come linger? Um, which to him is just, just sitting quietly with me and, and being in present with me. Um, relationship. Oh, I, I got to stop you there. Oh, I know. Cause I just love the word you just used. You said linger and your translation of that was to be present to one mm-hmm. another. And I really think that gets to the core of what Jesus is saying in a variety of ways in John 14. He's really saying, my Father and I are passionately present to one another. Philip, Thomas, I'm inviting you to be passionately present to me. Pay better attention to me. Linger with me. So I got to work in full-time ministry for a number of years with Larry Osborne, and he would talk about um, how him and his wife every day share share the nothings. 
so you know you come home what happened today oh nothing and he would say no i we if for us to have a deep relationship we need to know what the nothings are so they they just share the nothings the things that you think oh it's not worth mentioning you know oh the cat ran out and you know spilled the milk and you know whatever those are the nothings of life but the, it's the nothings that build a strong relationship and a strong marriage um, and intimacy. They build intimacy because they then you feel like you know everything. And th- that immediately took me to the next thing. We, Rick and I are actually part a, a small part of a larger group of people whose mission here is to help you connect your life better with Jesus. And I was in a big brainstorm with just amazingly creative people today. And we're talking about a campaign that we're going to be rolling out for you that's called Jesus Interruptions. And our whole idea is that we're debunking the quiet time. The quiet time is all about, I'm going to spend 30 minutes every single day, which most of us don't end up doing it. And then we feel guilty about it. And we want to debunk that and say that Jesus is with us all the time and that he's there for us to just shout up a a little like, Jesus, I need help with this. Hey, God, please have mercy on me. That all throughout our day, there's opportunities to have quiet time with Jesus, and we're calling them the Jesus interruptions. And that, I think, is part of sharing the nothings with Jesus. I love that. And, you know, we live in an age of distraction. There's no doubt about it. We have more distractions than we've ever had to deal with as human beings. And distraction um, is a tool, a technology, in the hand of our enemy, in the sense that distraction keeps us from intimacy. The thing that the enemy of God hates the most is our intimacy with God. He finds that disgusting and reprehensible. And so he is in in opposition to anything that brings intimacy in our relationship with God or true intimacy with each other. So distraction is one of his favorite tools because distraction makes intimacy impossible to have. So when we think about the things that we are attached to and the technologies that we use, we can think about it in terms of um, at what level am I helped in my presence with others by these technologies? How are they helping my presence? And how are they hurting my presence? How are they distracting my presence? from those in my life that I'm building relationship with. Because these technologies do both things, as you've already mentioned. Sometimes it helps your presence with people you're out of touch with. Sometimes it distracts from your presence for the people that you need to be present to. So let's talk a little bit about um, some simple ways that we... I've mentioned before that Jesus has called us to live in the world but not of it, and I use the analogy of jumping into a river that has a pretty strong current, and the idea here is that we would not allow the current to simply take us where it wants to. What Jesus is saying is, I want you in the current, but I don't want you to be of the current. I want you to be oppositional to the current. I want you to choose your own path guided by me, and you you have a great example of this. So that reminds me of, uh, I grew up in California, and so we were, my sisters and I were all boogie boarders and surfers, and we were constantly in the ocean, constantly. My dad would be begging us, come back, we have to go home. But when you get caught in a riptide, if you are you know, a seasoned person of the ocean, you know that what you do not do is, is start swimming back to the shore, because you will not get out of the riptide, it will continue to just keep carrying you out. What, the way that you get out of a riptide is that you swim to either side. 
and eventually you'll be out of the riptide and then you can either keep surfing, which is what we usually did, or you can swim to the sur- um, to the shore at that point. And um, that is I- exactly what w- we are in a, a place. This is this is the world we live in. We can't not be a part of this world. Um, we're here to be a part of this world and to 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 um, to reach this world for Jesus. But we can't we can't let whatever technology is driving this culture also be a distraction from our relationship with Jesus. And when we consider and immerse ourselves in the way that Jesus describes relationships and what he's after, uh, we can have that kind of plane in the back of our mind all the time, that this is what Jesus really is after. And as we swim in this fast current, how can we swim intentionally? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some ideas that can help us. This is just a menu of opportunity. It's not a list of shoulds. It's possibilities and experiments. So let's talk about a few ideas. So I, I also am on a different podcast that we host here called They Say Podcast, and it's for women. And we are doing, we, we, it's a very different podcast than this one. <laughs> We're doing a three-part series on the Danish art of hygge, um, which is about creating space for relationships in your life. And so some of these ideas actually came from an episode that we just recorded that we're going to share here today. But one of the things that uh, I am I am doing is that when I go out and I spend time with my friends, you know, having coffee or going out to dinner, I just I just don't even bring out my phone. I, I'm not I want them to know that I ha- they have my full attention and that that's the only thing that matters when we're together. Yeah, I have a close friend named Tom Melton, who's my pastor for many years, and he's he knows a huge number of people. He's both an extrovert and an introvert. One of the things that always amazed me about him, and I think it's really at the core of the calling of a pastor, I think Tom modeled this, is as he engaged the many, many people that were in his church, if you were talking to him, you were the only person that existed for that two minutes or three minutes, you were it. He was fully engaged in the person in front of him. The irony is that as soon as you left his sight, he was not thinking about you at all. (laughs) He was on to the next person. And in fact, that created problems for him sometimes in following up with stuff and things like that. He needed help in his life, administrative help, to just follow up with things. But what I loved about what he does is that if you're in his presence, you feel it too, that he is an undistracted presence, and that is such a gift in a world like this. It is not that hard of a skill to learn, by the way. It doesn't take that much effort to simply be present to the person in front of you. It just takes a little reminder, that little voice inside that says, whatever I'm distracted by right now, what would it look like for me to be fully present to the person in front of me? because this is the standard that Jesus is asking for in our relationships, full presence. So I talked about lingering because my husband has ADHD. It's, you know, we're trying to create more places um, practically where we can have more lingering. And I'm really into backgammon, which might be considered dorky, but I I really like backgammon. So we keep backgammon. Every every dorky thing you do is cool, Becky. That's what I think. (laughs) I keep backgammon at our dining room table to encourage that we just have a tendency to be like done with dinner and then moving on to the next thing. And uh, playing a game of backgammon is a way for us to linger longer at the dinner table. So uh, 
Another example that has been true for us this past year is I said to my wife the other day, we live in a, a neighborhood that has a circle drive around it, and it has a pool at the middle of the neighborhood and a community, a little community center. It's a very tight-knit neighborhood, and uh, people have a lot of social gatherings in this neighborhood, and we always feel like we're the least interesting people in the neighborhood because we are not going to all of these parties and, and stuff all the time. Um, I don't even know how they have time for this. We have two teenage girls, and but we always feel kind of like we're not the party people. And yet this last year, we've had more parties than anyone else in the neighborhood because we started a small group with a dozen or 20 teenagers that meets every Tuesday night since the beginning of June. And we have a party on Tuesday nights. We have food, we have music, we have laughter, we have tears, we have deep sharing, we have silly sharing. It's a party every Tuesday night. And what I realized is establishing a pattern of this, of having finding an excuse to have people in your home on a regular basis where you have a, 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 a focus for that. It could be a game night. It could be a book club. It could be anything, any excuse you can have. It could be a, a legitimate small group like we have. Any excuse to have people in your home the, the trappings of having people in your home that where you can linger around a table, hear their stories, look in their eyes, hear their heart, um, reflect back to them the beauty that you experience in them as you're relating to them, this is what our lives are really all about. This is where we invest our heart and our passion and our attention. We literally make relational investments this way. So we're not party people in our neighborhood, but somehow, accidentally, we became party people. <laughs> That's awesome. Our friend Cami, she owns a couple of cabins that she runs as a business, mostly for, for reunions. And they don't offer Wi-Fi at these cabins. And she will often get people who are just t completely stressed out about that. Oh, I have teenagers or my husband has to be able to, you know, get on his computer for work. And and, and she just says, you're, you're welcome, um, but we don't provide Wi-Fi here. And she will get long letters back after their experience saying particularly that their family disconnecting and just spending time together was the best memories they've ever had. Um, and we can try and create this in our lives by having just technology-free time. Maybe it's a day, maybe it's an hour, but just this is a time when we're just going to completely disconnect from technology so that we can better um, focus on each other. And you're going to have to do this in a way that seems a little draconian, because if you just say, well, let's just, I won't pay attention to it, I'll have it, but I won't pay attention to it, you actually have to do what Cami does with that cabin. It's not available. Pe yeah, the people arrive and they realize, oh, there's no Wi-Fi. You're I welcome. have no choice. And so what it does is it gets over that first hump that, that is difficult for us discipline-wise, and, and you're just in a place where you can't have it. So some version of that. So another thing that uh, that's related to that that I think is important in, in my talk with talks with parents, that overconnected teenagers seminar that I did with parents, I offered to meet with parents who were concerned that their kids were not only overconnected, but literally addicted to their social media or their texting or whatever. And I had a large group of parents that wanted to meet with me on the side. I met with them for two hours outside of the seminar to talk about their questions. And one of the things I realized is each of these parents were describing some level of addiction that their kids had around this. And what I tried to say was, think of this then, if that's true, think of this 
Would you put a bowl of cocaine on your kitchen counter if you knew that your kids were cocaine addicts? Well, of course not. Then why? You may have to get to this place where the thing that they are addicted to is taken away or is only available for certain portions of the day, and that you'll have to make that hard choice. You need to adjust to thinking about yourself as intervening in an addiction rather than simply trying to be a parent of a kid who's overconnected with their their smartphone. If it is as serious as that, and Simon Sinek says it, it's very possible it could could be that, you have to start thinking in terms of addiction and what you would do if there was a drug addiction going on. It, it then changes the game as far as what you think about the boundaries you have in your home. So that may be you. Mm-hmm. You may need to go to that extent. Rick mentioned that one of the things that we do here for a job is we create ways for you to pay ridiculous attention to Jesus. And I just had the opportunity today to look at something that we're going to be releasing in August, and it's a Jesus-centered day planner for 2018. And it's, it is beautiful, but it's, it's filled with prompts throughout the entire day to help you just focus in on your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with others. You know, there's every month, um, you know, check in with Jesus, pray, what people do you need to see this month? Or um, what relationships do you need to make a priority today? Um, And and Jesus, here's my plans. Now, what do you think of them? Mm -hmm. And then letting him kind of speak into that and planning um, your goals and your life around him. I'm really excited about what we're, we're doing this year for Jesus centered so be looking for more of that. What's really great about that too is that uh, this this resource like many of our resources it just a reminder if you haven't read the Jesus centered life or you don't have a Jesus centered bible all of these things somehow in some way are connected to those two things. There's sort of a foundational place to start if you're wanting to know how how do I live my life this way? The, the book gives plenty of help in that and the bible has this inexorable orbital pull as you read the Bible to help you center your life on Jesus. If you haven't checked those out yet, please do. One last little thing to throw in there in this in this practical conversation, and then, and then we'll say goodbye for today. We recently, in my house, for the last year and a half, we have replaced our oblong kitchen table where we eat most of our meals with a round glass table that's smaller, and there's four of us in our family. Um, it has had a profound impact. We already had great conversations around our dinner table, but now those conversations I've noticed are longer. We linger longer with each other, literally because we change the shape and size of our the table that we eat at. It has that kind of profound impact. This is going to sound crazy, but think about the furniture and how you've arranged it in your home. Is it arranged to help you uh, propagate better relationships in longer lingering times, or is the furniture too far apart? or not arranged properly to uh, be conducive for that. It's something to think about. I don't think it's I don't think this is really feng shui. It's let's make up our own strange sounding name for this. Something that helps you to linger. Jesus centered furniture arrangement. Lingerberry furniture. <laughs> Lingerberry. <laughs> Lingering <laughs> anyway, furniture. Thank you all for listening. We love to hear back from you as always. If you have comments about how you're living this life out, uh, please uh, leave those comments right here on the episode page for this episode of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can find it on the JesusCenteredLife.com. You just find our podcast section, and this one is Season 2, Episode 3. So 
uh, please do tell us your story. We'd love to create a conversation around this. And please do also subscribe to us on iTunes to get all the latest podcasts and make sure you don't miss any. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.